Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Third Nephi, Chapter 3 As this chapter opens, Laconius, the chief judge that we are introduced to in Third Nephi, Chapter 1, receives a letter from Gideonhi, the head of the Gadianton robbers, or the leader and the governor of this band of robbers, as verse 1 says. Mormon's description of Gideonhi as the governor of this band has a way of elevating his stature from the leader of a small subversive group to something much larger. In fact, by this point in the narrative, it is clear that the Gadianton robbers have grown into a mainstream movement. This aligns with recent descriptions of the Gadianton robbers in verses 11 through 12 of 3 Nephi chapter 2. And it came to pass in the thirteenth year that there began to be wars and contentions throughout all the land. For the Gadianton robbers had become so numerous and did slay so many of the people and did lay waste to so many cities and did spread so much death and carnage throughout the land that it became expedient that all the people, both the Nephites and the Lamanites, should take up arms against them. Therefore all the Lamanites who had become converted unto the Lord did unite with their brethren, the Nephites, and were compelled for the safety of their lives and their women and their children to take up arms against those Gadianton robbers, yea, and also to maintain their rights and the privileges of their church and of their worship and their freedom and their liberty. Mormon used similar language when discussing the Lamanite threat under Amalickiah's leadership, which tells us in no uncertain terms that, again, The Gadianton robbers have grown from the small gang of Kishkumen and Gadianton in the early part of the Book of Helaman to a vast force capable of laying waste to many cities, as that verse just said. They have become politically formidable and militarily dangerous. This helps us to understand the tone of Gideonhi's letter to Laconius. It begins with a salutation that sounds like an exchange between two equally equipped but ideologically opposed statesmen. He says, Laconius, most noble and chief governor of the land, behold, I write this epistle unto you and do give unto you exceedingly great praise because of your firmness, and also the firmness of your people in maintaining that which ye suppose to be your right and liberty. Yea, ye do stand well as if ye were supported by the hand of a god in the defense of your liberty and your property and your country, or that which ye do call so. As the letter goes on, however, it becomes clear that Gideonhi sees himself as something more than Laconius' equal. He writes in verse 3, And it seemeth a pity unto me, most noble Laconius, that ye should be so foolish and vain as to suppose that ye can stand against so many brave men who are, are at my command, who do now at this time stand in their arms, and do await with great anxiety for the word, go down upon the Nephites and destroy them. 
If Gideon High's threats to Laconia seem familiar here, it is because they sound like Amaron's letter to Chief Captain Moroni in Alma chapter 54, verses 18 through 19, when he said, And now behold, if you will lay down your arms and subject yourselves to be governed by those to whom the government doth rightly belong, then will I cause that my people shall lay down their weapons and shall be at war no more. Behold, ye have breathed out many threatenings against me and my people, but behold, we fear not your threatenings. At this point, we might be led to ask, how could Gideonhai be this brazen? This is a question that can't help but rise to the surface as we go through the full text of his letter. In fact, we as modern readers can feel the raw intimidation of Gideonhai's letter, even while we are insulated from his threat by space and time. As we consider that question here, however, again the question of Gideonhai's brazenness, we can see that Gideonhai is speaking with a warped sense of moral certitude, the kind that can only come from the popular support of the people who were joining his ranks daily, and that was maintained by the blindness caused by his lust for gain. Additionally, Gideonhai was a man who felt vindicated by a specific grievance narrative that was manufactured and propagated by turning actual reality on its head. As he will tell Laconius in this verse regarding the brave men at his command, I, knowing of their unconquerable spirit, having proved them in the field of battle, and knowing of their everlasting hatred towards you because of the many wrongs which you have done unto them, if they should come down against you, they would visit you with utter destruction. One wonders as to the many wrongs that Gideonhai speaks of here. What are they? The wrongs perpetrated upon the Gadianton robbers are hard to see upon our first reading of this account, but if we look more carefully, we can see that they are related to the exact same grievance narrative that was perpetuated by the Lamanites during earlier times. It has to do with the right to rule. Gideonhai tells Laconius at the end of his letter that this my people may recover their rights and government who have dissented away from you because of your wickedness in retaining from them their rights of government. And except you do this, I will avenge their wrongs. This too sounds like Amaron when he told Moroni in verse 17 of Alma chapter 54 that behold, your fathers did wrong their brethren insomuch that they did rob them of their right to the government when it rightly belonged unto them. The grievance narratives on these two occasions seem similar to the ones that are foisted upon the righteous today. They are centered around an unrighteous sense of entitlement that is ironically represented by the word rights. How then did Laconius respond to this letter and the prospect of destruction that it signaled? Verse 12 will tell us simply that this Laconius, the governor, was a just man and could not be frightened by the demands and the threatenings of a robber. Therefore he did not hearken to the epistle of Gideonhai, the governor of the robbers. So, how could Gideonhai be so brazen, and how could Laconius have no fear? After all, we know a great deal about the track record of Nephite chief judges during this era. Laconius must have known that his odds for being murdered were frighteningly high. Yet he did not fear. What was the basis for his confidence? It seemed to come from his faith in Christ, as well as his careful preparation. The Book of Mormon Institute manual teaches, 
It is easy to see Satan's imprint in Gideonhai's words in 3 Nephi chapter 3, verses 1-10, through 10, as he used flattery in verse 2, and feigned concern in verse 5, and made false promises in verses 7 and 8 to, uh, to accomplish his evil designs. How like the devil's promises were Gideonhai's promises of freedom, when all he had to offer was bondage and a promise to share possessions that were not even his to share. Laconia straightway turned his attention to his people. He knew they needed to be physically and spiritually prepared for the imminent attack of Gideonhai's robbers. He had his people build strong fortifications, which we'll read in verse 14, and gather their animals and families into one place, the land of Zarahemla. He had them make weapons and armor, and gather a seven-year supply of provisions. Laconius instructed his people to leave the deserted land desolate so the robbers would not be able to forage for food. And we'll see how that plays out in the third Nephi chapter 4. Most importantly, as the Institute Manual goes on, Laconius had his people prepare spiritually. He reminded them of the safety of repentance. His people repented and prayed mightily unto the Lord, Thus, they wisely prepared themselves both physically and spiritually for the imminent attack of their enemies. We have been asked to prepare physically and spiritually in our day for imminent calamities. Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles taught what we should do to prepare for the events that precede the Savior's coming. What if the day of His coming were tomorrow, Elder Oaks says? If we knew that we would meet the Lord tomorrow through our premature death or His unexpected coming, what would we do today? What confessions would we make? What practices would we discontinue? What accounts would we settle? What forgivenesses would we extend? What testimonies would we bear? If we would do these things then, then why not now? Why not seek peace while peace can be obtained? If our lamps of preparation are drawn down, let us start immediately to replenish them. We need to make both temporal and spiritual preparation for the events prophesied at the time of the second coming. And the preparation most likely to be neglected is the one less visible and more difficult, the spiritual. Are we following the Lord's command, Stand ye in holy places, and be not moved, until the day of the Lord come? For behold, it cometh quickly. What are those holy places? By the way, that's a statement out of Doctrine and Covenants, section 87, verse 8. What are those holy places? President Oaks asks. Surely they include the temple and its covenants faithfully kept. Surely they include a home where children are treasured and parents are respected. Surely the holy places include our posts of duty assigned by priesthood authority, including missions and callings faithfully fulfilled in branches, wards, and stakes. Well, we can take courage then in the face of similarly intimidating threats in our modern day as we follow the lead of Laconius and prepare for that which is to come both spiritually and temporally. As we look at the structure of this 26th first chapter, we can see that in the first section, in verses 1 through 10, Laconius receives this letter from Gideonhai. Again, he's described as the governor of this band of robbers. And he offers to spare the Lamanites if they will yield their lands and possessions to join him. So we'll look at that in a lot more detail. In verses 11 and 12, we can see that Laconius is rightfully astonished by Gideonhai's letter. At the same time, however, he's not frightened. That's when we read this remarkable statement in verse 12 that Laconius was a just man and could not be frightened by the demands and the threatenings of a robber. 
So instead, as we'll see in verses 13 through 18, Laconius implements a plan to prepare for Gideon High's attack. He directs the people to gather in one land, and he preaches repentance, and he appoints Gidgadoni as chief captain. Now, in verses 19 through 21, something interesting happens. Now that Gidgadoni has been appointed as the chief captain, the people appeal to him to consult with the Lord and to mount an offensive against the robbers. So this seems to run counter to what Laconius's plan was, but instead, Gidgadoni defends Laconius's plan. So then we can see in the final verses of this chapter, verses 22 through 26, that Laconius's plan is indeed implemented, and thousands, as it says, of people gather as one body in Zarahemla and Bountiful. So this, this whole area between these two seems to be cordoned off, and they prepare spiritually and physically for battle. Their language as they do so sounds very similar to the righteous in other eras who were protected who were protected by God during times of battle because they were sorry to go into battle. Uh, verse 26 will say they were exceedingly sorrowful because of their enemies. Now to return to verse 1 for a reading. And now it came to pass that in the sixteenth year from the coming of Christ, Laconius the governor of the land received an epistle from the leader and the governor of this band of robbers, and these were the words which were written, saying. Now, here's some commentary by John Welch and then by Hugh Nibley before we move in to what Gideonhi said. First John Welch, he said, Among Book of Mormon peoples, military commanders typically corresponded with each other before launching any attacks, even where hatred ran deep and even when there was no chance that the proposed terms would be accepted, the parties asked for capitulation or extended terms of surrender before going to battle. That's in Welch's book called Law and War. Nibley says in his approach to the Book of Mormon, a letter from the leader of the society to the governor of the Nephite land gives remarkable insight into their psychology. The chief who signs himself the governor of the society begins by expressing warm admiration for the Nephite governor's firmness in maintaining that which he supposed to be a right and liberty, showing himself to be a fair-minded and sporting type. In the next verse, he is very patronizing, every inch the big shot. And it seemeth a pity unto me, most noble Laconius, that ye should be so foolish and vain as to suppose that ye can stand against so many brave men who are at my command. So, big-hearted as he is, the chief proposes a dill, but not until he has first given a little sermon, which burns with righteous indignation for the wrongs he and his people have suffered. The deal is that Laconius, for whose genuine talent and courage the chief again expresses his sincere admiration, is to be taken into the society, and in return for bringing with him all of the property over which his authority extends, he is to be received on a 50-50 basis— not our slaves, but our brethren and partners of all our substance. It was all very high-minded and idealistic. The chief was speaking only in the name of virtue. He was simply giving the other side a break, feeling for your welfare, as he so nicely put it. If the deal was refused, it would be curtains, which is mob talk. Ye shall become extinct. All that he is asking for, Gideon High concludes, is that this my people may recover their rights and government, who have dissented away from you because of your wickedness in retaining from them the rights of government. And let no one suppose that his followers did not sincerely believe that they were the righteous and offended ones, 
and their opponents just too wicked to live with. That's almost a satirical tone, or at least sarcastic tone, that is taken by Nibley in that commentary, but it's tremendously useful to consider what it is that Gideonhai is doing here. So again, we know that he's going to start his letter here, and I'll read for several verses before uh, going to any more commentary. So he begins by saying in verse 2, Laconius, most noble and chief governor of the land, behold, I write this epistle unto you and do give unto you exceedingly great praise because of your firmness and also the firmness of your people in maintaining that which ye suppose to be your right and liberty. Yea, ye do stand well, as if ye were supported by the hand of a god in the defense of your liberty and your property and your country, or that which ye do call so. And it seemeth a pity unto me, most noble Laconius, that ye should be so foolish and vain as to suppose that ye can stand against so many brave men who are at my command, who do now at this time stand in their arms and do await with great anxiety for the word to go down upon the Nephites and destroy them. So Gideonhai is very crafty in uh, restating uh, Laconius's and the Nephites' concept of defending their liberty and their property and their country. So he's acknowledging that he knows that that is their their war cry. Uh, That has been the case ever since Captain Moroni. But then he says, or that which you do call so. It's kind of chilling. Verse 4, And I, knowing of their unconquerable spirit, again, this is his men that are at their command, and they're chomping at the bit to go down upon the Nephites and to destroy them. So knowing of their unconquerable spirit, having proved them in the field of battle, and knowing of their everlasting hatred towards you because of the many wrongs which ye have done unto them. Therefore, if they should come down against you, they would visit you with utter destruction. Clearly, Gideonhai has no regard for any divine intervention that the Nephites have qualified for in the past. It's not real to him. Uh, Boyd K. Packer once spoke upon that by saying, One thing is for sure, the skeptics will never know, for he will not meet the requirement of faith, humility, and obedience to qualify him for the visitation of the Spirit. Now Gideon High continues in verse 5, Therefore I have written this epistle, sealing it with mine own hand, feeling for your welfare because of your firmness in that which ye believe to be right, and your noble spirit in the field of battle. So there's some more flattery and kind of a condescending tone. Therefore I write unto you, desiring that ye would yield up uh, unto this my people, your cities, your lands, and your possessions, rather than that they should visit you with a sword and that destruction should come upon you. Again, remember what the uh, Institute Manual said, that how like the devil's promises were Gideonhai's promises of freedom when all he had to offer was bondage and a promise to share possessions that were not even his to share. Verse 7, or in other words, yield yourselves up unto us and unite with us and become acquainted with our secret works, and become our brethren, that ye may be like unto us, not our slaves, but our brethren and partners of all our substance. Well, he's got Laconius over a barrel. He has him outnumbered. This is truly an intimidating letter. And there's this arm of um, mercy in the most worldly uh, way possible here, in the most evil way possible, that's being extended to Laconius in this instance, uh, promising him that if, if he will simply fall in line ideologically with Gideonhai, then all will be well. 
and that he will be one notch better. He and his people will be one notch better than their slaves. They will be their partners in all their substance. Again, this is substance that is not Gideon Heights in the first place. John L. Sorensen has written, The ambitious did not seek power for its sake alone. It was a means to earthier satisfactions. Gideon High was at least as concerned with possessions and all our substance as he was with rights and rulership. The secret group under Gadianton and successors were robbers and plunderers who set their hearts upon their riches. In this consummately Mesoamerican lust for wealth and creature comforts, we are reminded forcefully of the self-serving deceptions of Gideon High, writing to the Nephite chief judge Laconius, I am Gideon High, and I am the governor of this secret society of Gadianton. Deliver up your lands and your possessions without the shedding of blood, that this my people may recover their rights and government. Yield up unto this my people your cities, your lands, and your possessions, rather than that they should be visit that they should visit you with a sword. Or in other words, yield yourselves up unto us and unite with us, and become acquainted with our secret works and become our brethren, that ye may be like unto us. In other words, get a piece of the action, not our slaves, but our brethren and partners of all our substance. Manifestly, the Book of Mormon and Mesoamerican secret groups were up to the same tricks and operated according to similar rules. Verse 8, And behold, I swear unto you, if ye do this with an oath, ye shall not be destroyed. But if ye will do not this, I swear unto you with an oath that on the morrow month I will command that my armies shall come down against you, and they shall not stay their hand, and shall spare not, but shall slay you, and shall let fall the sword upon you even until you shall become extinct. In his same work, Law and War, John Welch has written, These legal notices declaring war, in effect initiating a lawsuit between the gods of the respective sides to be decided through the ordeal of battle, were to be lodged according to Jewish law at least two or three days before opening hostilities. Thus, it was consonant with such principles that Gideonhai gave Laconius until the morrow month to consider his proposal before his armies would come down against the Nephites and make them extinct. Granting a few days' respite was necessary to allow the other side to decide whether to accept or reject the offer. This also allowed time for the troops to gather at an appointed place for the battle if the enemy were to reject the terms. In the civil war with the Amlicites, for example, The Nephites evidently knew when and where the Amlicites would attack, for they had time to prepare and gather for the battle, knowing the intent of the Amlicites and the time of their coming. The most obvious case in the Book of Mormon of making such pre-arrangements was the final battle at Cumorah, in which the commanders agreed on the time and place where they would meet, as Mormon had requested. A similar practice is evidenced in the instructions of the ancient Egyptian commander Pianchi to his general, to give the enemy choice of time and place for the fight. Now, as the letter concludes in verses 9 and 10, And behold, I am Gideonhai, and I am the governor of this secret society of Gadianton, which society and the works thereof I know to be good, and they are of ancient date, and they have been handed down unto us. And I write this epistle unto you, Laconius, and I hope that you will deliver up your lands and your possessions without the shedding of blood, that this my people may recover their rights and government, who have dissented away from you because of your wickedness in retaining from them the rights of government. And except ye do this, I will avenge their wrongs. I am Gideon High. Ogden and Skinner have written, The secret combination, the band of robbers, brazenly regarded itself as strong enough to demand capitulation from the Nephite government. 
the governor of the, le- of the band, using flattery, false accusation, intimidation, and threats, demanded that the head of the government give up, join the secret society, and partner with the robbers in their works, which, as the robber chief said, I know to be good. Think there of Isaiah's warning of woe to those who call evil good, by the way. Now we come to Laconius's response to this letter in verses 11 and 12. And now it came to pass that when Laconius received this epistle, he was exceedingly astonished because of the boldness of Gideonhai, demanding the possession of the land of the Nephites, and also of the threatening of the people and avenging the wrongs of those that had received no wrong, save it where they had wronged themselves by dissenting away into those wicked and abominable robbers. Now behold, this Laconius the governor was a just man, and could not be frightened by the demands and the threatenings of a robber. Therefore he did not hearken to the epistle of Gideonhai, the governor of the robbers, but he did cause that his people should cry unto the Lord for strength against the time that the robbers should come down against them. John Welch and Kelly Ward co-wrote an article called Thieves and Robbers. It talks about the uh, way in which Gideonhai is being designated here as a robber. They say, although there is only little difference between a thief and a robber in most modern minds, there were considerable differences between the two under ancient Near Eastern law. A thief, or Ganab, G-A-N-A-B, was usually a local person who stole from his neighbor. He was dealt with judicially. He was tried and punished civilly, most often by a court composed of his fellow townspeople. A robber, on the other hand, was treated as an outsider, as a brigand or highwayman. He was dealt with militarily, and he could be executed summarily. Now, we come to this next section where Laconius, fearing not, decides to implement a plan that will prepare him and his people for Gideonhai's pending attack. So he's going to direct the people to gather. Um, he's going to appoint Gidgadonai as chief captain, but he's also going to preach repentance at the same time. So verse 13, Yea, he sent a proclamation among all the people that they should gather together their women and their children, their flocks and their herds, and all their substance save it were their land unto one place. And he caused that fortification should be built round about them, and the strength thereof should be exceedingly great. And he caused that armies, both of the Nephites and of the Lamanites, or of all them who were numbered among the Nephites, should be placed as guards round about to watch them, and to guard them from the robbers day and night. Yea, he said unto them, As the Lord liveth, except ye repent of all your iniquities, and cry unto the Lord, ye will in no wise be delivered out of the hands of those Gadianton robbers. Richard Rust has written, Though there is no direct response by Laconius to Gideon High that would reveal a contrast in personalities, we are given part of Laconius's proclamation to his people. He calls on them to gather into one central location with their families and enough substance for seven, seven years, and he says they must repent or they will in no wise be delivered out of the hands of those Gadianton robbers. His plan is successful. Gideon High is slain and the robbers are eventually defeated. Well, there's a spoiler in that piece of commentary by Rust, of course, but the point is um, well taken that uh, Laconius preached repentance to these people, and that is a common element among other great leaders, great military leaders in the Book of Mormon. Uh, Moroni most certainly did it. There's an interesting incident, in fact, in George Washington's career when he did it as well. Verse 16 And so great and marvelous were the words and prophecies of Laconius. Now that's something to just take in for a moment. Not only did this military leader encourage his people to repent, but he himself 
was capable of such marvelous words and even prophecies. So that gives us a, a great insight, as Rust had mentioned earlier, into his spiritual capacity, even though we don't have the pleasure of reading a, a response epistle back to Gideonhai. That they did cause fear to come upon all the people, and they did exert themselves in their might to do according to the words of Laconius. And it came to pass that Laconius did appoint chief captains over all the armies of the Nephites to command them at the time that the robbers should come down out of the wilderness against them. Now the chiefest among all the chief captains and the great commander of all the armies of the Nephites was appointed, and his name was Gidgadoni. So we have a head of the government in Laconius, and then we have a head of the military in Gidgadoni. When we think back to late Alma, the analogs to these characters are Pehoran as head of the government and Captain Moroni as head of the military. Then, of course, Helaman was the spiritual leader during that time. Here we have Nephi as the spiritual leader during this time. That doesn't figure, he doesn't figure directly into the story. Um, and then Gidgadoni is the head of the military. And Laconius is then head over the government. So there's some similar uh, players in this as, as we look at this, except this time, of course, this is not conflict with the Lamanites, but this is conflict with the Gadianton robbers. So now something kind of curious happens. The people don't seem to fall in line immediately with what Laconius has prescribed. Um, although it does say in verse 16 that the people that exert themselves in their might to do according to the words of Laconius. So there certainly was compliance, but there's another strain uh, of, of opinion that seems to be going on here. So we we get a sense for this in verse 19 after Gidgadoni has been appointed. Now it was the custom among all the Nephites to appoint for their chief captains, save it were in their times of wickedness, someone that had the spirit of revelation and also prophecy. Therefore this Gidgadoni was a great prophet among them, as also was the chief judge. So that previously has been made clear to us that Laconius's words were great, as were his prophecies, and we can see that Gidgadoni has the same impressive capacity. So our military leader, our government leader, and of course Nephi, the leader of the church, all of them had the same capacity. Daniel Ludlow has written, Religion and warfare were closely connected in the Book of Mormon. Certain elements of the Israelite patterns of holy war were continued in the Book of Mormon, such as the important ancient idea that success in war was due fundamentally to the will of God and the righteousness of the people. Nephite armies consulted prophets before going to battle, and Ludlow provides several references to that, and entered into covenants with God before battle. Now, in verse 20, the people said unto Gidgadoni, Pray unto the Lord, and let us go up upon the mountains and into the wilderness, that we may fall upon the robbers and destroy them in their own lands. So they seemed compliant enough with Laconius's instructions, but now that Gidgadoni has been appointed, they really do want to mount an offensive. Well, here's Gidgadoni's response. And it's not surprising, of course, that he is in sync with Laconius. They're both men of God. But Gidgadoni saith unto them, The Lord forbid, for if we should go up against them, the Lord would deliver us into their hands. Therefore, we will prepare ourselves in the center of our lands, and we will gather all our armies together, and we will not go against them, but we will wait till they shall come against us. Therefore, as the Lord liveth, if we do this, he will deliver them into our hands. So there's quite a lot of available insight into this particular episode. 
Uh, first, this from Terence Sink. He said, although the people had faith in Gidgadoni as a prophet, they misunderstood his role in leading them. They assumed he could lead them in a successful offensive battle against the Gadianton robbers. However, he explained that the Lord would not help them launch a first-strike attack against their enemies, but would only help them defend themselves. Now this from Daniel Ludlow's companion to your study of the Book of Mormon, and he quotes from several other parties as he takes us through this. Although the Gadiatan robbers had threatened to come to battle against the Nephites on the morrow month, when the Nephites asked their military leader Gid-Gadoni to attack the robbers first, Gid-Gadoni said, The Lord forbid, for if we should go up against them, the Lord would deliver us into their hands. This counsel of the Lord not to wage offensive war has apparently been given to people of all dispensations. Doctrine and Covenants section 98 verses 32 through 38 are an example. This principle is also the teaching of the church at this time, as is indicated in the following statement by President George Q. Cannon. He said, We must proclaim peace, do all in our power to appease the wrath of our enemies, make any sacrifice that honorable people can to avert war with all its horrors, entailing as it does dreadful consequences so numerous that they cannot be mentioned. It is our duty, I say, as a nation. The influence of the Latter-day Saints should be used in this direction. We should seek to quell those feelings of anxiety to fight and to shed blood. Our influence should go forth like oil poured upon the troubled waters, quieting the waves of discontent and wrath that are aroused by this fearful spirit." Not only ought we to extend the offering of peace the first time to a nation that proclaims war against us, but again the second time, and if that should be rejected again the third time, and if it be rejected the third time, then they should bring these testimonies before the Lord. Go to the Lord and say, Here are our testimonies. We have offered peace the first time, we have offered it twice, and we have offered it three times, but our offerings are rejected, and this nation is determined to have war with us. Now we bring these testimonies before thee, Lord. I do not look for our nation to do this. It is scarcely to be expected in the nature of things that they would do it. But it is true. It is the true principle, and we as a people should use our influence for this purpose. Our prayers should ascend to God. Our petition should ascend to the government of our nation to do everything that honorable people can to avert war. We have no fear of the effect of the combinations against us. But the promise of God is that if we will do right as a nation, if we will serve him, they shall not have power over us or be able to bring us into bondage, and in the end we shall prevail. This is a glorious promise which is made to the inhabitants of the land. To us as Latter-day Saints, these principles are of the utmost importance. I do not want to see our young men get filled with the spirit of war and be eager for the conflict. God forbid that such a spirit should prevail in our land or that we should contribute in any manner to the propagation of a spirit of that kind. But one may say, it is not our duty to defend our country. Is it not our duty to defend our country and our flag? Is it not our duty to maintain the institutions which the Lord has given to us? Certainly it is, and it is no part of cowardice to take the plan that the Lord has pointed out. No man need be afraid that the Lord or any just man will look upon him as a coward." That was from a conference report by George Q. Cannon in April of 1898, by the way. Now Ludlow continues, The principle behind this counsel apparently is related to the principle of repentance, as it is indicated in this statement by President Joseph Fielding Smith. Quote, The law of forgiveness and retribution applies to individuals and to families, as well as to the church at large. 
We are under commandment to forgive our enemies and to suffer their abuses, and smiting the first time and second time, also the third time. This is to be done in patience and in humility and prayer, hoping that the enemy might repent. If the enemy come upon us for the fourth time, we are justified in meeting out retribution, but even then there is to come a reward if we patiently endure, and the Lord will reward us abundantly. For all these abuses we will be rewarded if we endure them in patience. Perchance the enemy may repent, and that we should most sincerely desire. This may be to the most ordinary human being a hard law to follow, but nevertheless it is the word of the Lord. One of the best illustrations of this spirit of enduring wrong rather than retaliating is found in the story of the people of Ammon in the Book of Mormon. Because they refused to take up arms and defend themselves, but would rather lay down their lives than shed blood even in their own defense, they brought many of their enemies to repentance and to the kingdom of God. This is the doctrine of Jesus Christ as taught in the Sermon on the Mount. If all peoples would accept this doctrine, there could be no war, and all difficulties could be adjusted in righteousness. This doctrine was taught, so the Lord declared to his people anciently. There are many things in the Old Testament in relation to the wars and battles of the Israelites in the meager record which has come down to us, which are made to appear to us that these people were cruel and vengeful. But the Lord says they went out to battle when they were guided by prophets in the spirit of revelation when the Lord commanded them. So again, Gideon High has forbidden the people to go on an offensive. And instead, they will wait for Gideon High and his people to come against them. So that's how this chapter will now end in the last uh, several verses. Uh, Laconius' plan will be implemented, and we'll see all of these people gathering together as one body in this uh, kind of composite land, as it now will be of Zarahemla and Bountiful. Verse 22, And it came to pass in the seventeenth year, in the latter end of the year, the proclamation of Laconius had gone forth throughout all the face of the land. And they had taken their horses and their chariots and their cattle, and all their flocks and their herds and their grain, and all their substance, and did march forth by thousands and by tens of thousands, until they had all gone forth to the place which had been appointed that they should gather themselves together, to defend themselves against their enemies. And the land which was appointed was the land of Zarahemla, and the land which was in between the land Zarahemla and the land Bountiful, yea, to the line which was between the land Bountiful and the land Desolation. As we try and envision this, then, we certainly have a sense for the city of Zarahemla. It's a great city that seems to be the capital city within a land of Zarahemla, which is something like a county within the nation of Zarahemla, because uh, Zarahemla is often referred to in the Book of Mormon in a national sense, and then within it there are several different lands that have capital cities within those lands. But the capital city of the nation is Zarahemla, and it's in the land of Zarahemla. So it seems to be this land to which all the Nephites are gathering, but it also includes the land of Bountiful and the land that is in between Zarahemla and Bountiful. So it seems like quite a large area that they have cordoned off and that they have gathered to, and they have left every other land and every other city in the Nephite nation vacant, and it doesn't have enough to sustain the Gadianton robbers as they move in and occupy those lands, as we will soon see in 3 Nephi chapter 4. John Sorensen has written, Northward beyond the borders of the land of Zarahemla lay an unnamed land which was between the land Zarahemla and the land Bountiful. This place is mentioned only in 3 Nephi chapter 3 verse 23. The line containing these words was omitted from the printed text for many years, 
apparently because of a typesetter's error, but has been replaced in the 1981 edition of the Book of Mormon. The land bountiful as a whole seems to have been quite narrow, since Alma chapter 22, verses 31 through 33, describes it mostly as a zone that ran across the narrow neck of land. Little more is said about it. Verse 24, And there were a great many thousand people who were called Nephites. So that seems to be the equivalent of saying that there were thousands of them. Who did gather themselves together in this land? Now Laconius did cause that they should gather themselves together in the land southward because of the great curse which was upon the land northward. So now we're speaking more broadly. We're we're delineating between uh, the Nephite nation as we have come to know it through the book of Alma and this land northward that we began to have an awareness of at the very end of Alma when people migrated into that land in Alma chapter 63, and then we saw similar northward migrations in early Helaman. Uh, But this is not part of what's happening here. It's all happening in the southward land, and the capital of that, of course, is Zarahemla, and uh, Bountiful is is, uh, close enough to it that that should be included too, and it's dear enough to the people that they want to gather there. Verse 25, And they did fortify themselves against their enemies, and they did dwell in one land and in one body, and they did fear the words which had been spoken by Laconius, insomuch that they did repent of all their sins, and they did put up their prayers unto their God, unto the Lord their God, that he would deliver them in the time that their enemies should come down against them to battle. Well, this is a really curious and intriguing response to the threat of the Gadianton robbers, and we'll soon see how this plays out. Thomas Arvaleta has written, In this intriguing account, the Nephites gather together unto one place, verse 13, in the center of their lands, as it says in verse 21, to the place which had been appointed, as it says in verse 22, in one body, verse 25, and did repent of all their sins and put up their prayers to God, also in verse 25. This passage reminds us of Enoch's city, whose gathered people were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness. That's from Moses chapter 7, verse 18. Valletta then points out that these events forecast the last days when the saints establish a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the Most High God, which is written of in Doctrine and Covenants section 45, verse 65. Now for the final verse of this chapter, and they were exceedingly sorrowful because of their enemies, and Gidgadoni did cause that they should make weapons of war of every kind, and they should be strong with armor and with shields and with bucklers, after the manner of his instruction. Finally, here's some summarizing commentary from Ogden and Skinner, now that we've come to the end of this chapter. Mormon provided valuable insight to us today. A key requirement for good government among the Nephites, including their deliverance, lay in the personal righteousness and courage of political and military leaders. Laconius, the governor, and Gidgadoni, the chief captain of the Nephite armies, were just men and great prophets. They encouraged their people to make temporal and tactical preparations to confront the opposition in a defensive war and especially to repent and turn to God for help in in this time of crisis. They did unite and prepare, and they did repent and plead with God for deliverance. The parallels between these conditions in the days before the Lord's first coming to ancient America and the conditions shaping up in these last days just before the Lord's second coming to the Americas, are striking. Well, they are striking indeed, and we'll soon come to 3 Nephi chapter 4, where we will fully expect 
Gideonhai and his robbers to mobilize and move upon uh, this united body in the land of Zarahemla and Bountiful. We'll see that they do indeed do so, and we'll soon see how that plays out. For now, this brings us to the end of this wonderful chapter, 3 Nephi, chapter 3. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.